Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Let's uh, discuss policing here in Vancouver. The Vancouver Police Department began voting on a new contract just yesterday. The deal comes with improved parental leave benefits and access to mental health supports. Uh, if members do ratify the contract, as they're expected to do, there will be an annual wage increase of 4.5%. Now, constables with more than five years' uh, experience will be making almost $122,000 per year, making them the highest paid in Canada. Now, according to Councillor Pete Fry, that uh, amounts to about 2.5% increase on your property tax bill and will cost the city about $30 million. Now, this is all occurring as council uh, debates and discusses a potential 7.6% property tax increase for 2024. And of course, that's on top of the 10.7% property tax increase for 2023. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the issue is Francis Buell, who's a political contributor for the Globe and Mail. Francis, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So uh, your thoughts on this? I don't think I'm going to begrudge anybody for negotiating um, wage increases and other benefits for themselves and their members. Uh, How do you think this is going to sit with the public in regards to just the property tax increase in the context of this next year's property tax increase and uh, the one that we've gone through already? Yeah, I mean, obviously, no one's going to be happy about it. Like, everyone I know is completely cranky, you know, like a, a leak costs ten dollars and house insurance has increased by you know between 30 and 50 percent for a bunch of people gas is up you know obviously people are not happy about the increased expenses um those who support the police maybe they'll be more supportive of this i'm not sure it's obviously like a very large amount but you can see why it happened every jurisdiction is competing for police officers and they don't want to lose anybody to surrey or you know, Langley or wherever it is, they're probably actually living. Um, So to do that, you have to have a hefty um, pay increase, and that's what's happening. I guess a third of the budget in the city is already uh, uh, to pay for policing. And one would argue, and some would argue, that, look, there's unique conditions the Vancouver police have to deal with. You have more protests down here. The needs are a little different for Vancouver compared to many suburban Oh, yeah, you know, people who look at, you know, Port Moody's per capita police spending, they're not at all taking into account the fact that you're policing a central business district. You have fireworks, you have protests, you have, like, there's just, you know, the population of the city increases during the day as people come in. Um, So for sure, you know, Vancouver does spend more per capita, but then it has corporate taxes, um, so it's not all on the residents. But yeah, it's a pretty big amount. I'm actually just peering right now on my screen at the 2024 draft operating budget. And so the full budget is $2.15 billion. And what they've got budgeted for police for 2024 is $440 million. So almost wow. half a billion. Yeah, and I think the, the it does say that it, it, the operating budget would hit half a billion dollars by 20. 20- 
28. Now, remember, this is ABC, the so-called fiscally conservative party that's been elected for council. Yeah. How do they sell this to their own members and their own voting base uh, and say, look, uh, we, we kept taxes down to just... <laughs> <laughs> Just I, around 18% I don't know. over I mean, two I, years. I talked to the mayor about this recently, and he said he felt like he did a really bad job of explaining to people why the tax increase was needed the first time and how much it was actually, how it was actually really a very low cost per day. I, I guess maybe he's going to have to gear up that speech again for this year, although we still have to uh, hear from his task force. Um, you know, he had appointed this special task force. So what we're seeing so far is the staff report saying 2.15 billion and a 7.6% increase, but we're, everyone's waiting to see what the task force might recommend that could potentially bring that down. But, you know, everything looks really up to me. Like even the office of the, of the, the, the mayor, uh, is, is, uh, or, or, you know, the mayor and council expenses are up, you know, everything's kind of up. Why do you think that is? I mean, it's, is it is it a COVID thing? Is it just the fact that there's just the city is trying to do too much? I'm just trying to understand. I mean, it's always a challenge. I get that. Uh, but Vancouver seems to have these increases that are significantly uh, seem to be a lot more than many other municipalities. <laughs> Yeah, although I am noticing like higher than usual tax increases, even in suburban areas that we're very proud of keeping their taxes low. You're still people see people talking about four and five percent. I mean, we it's inflation, and what a lot of people don't realize is the city has staff, and that their wages go up every year. Like that's a huge proportion of the budget, and then another huge proportion is you have to maintain this huge infrastructure system. And you know, anyone who drives around town will know there's a lot of road work going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, uh, and, and this is a council that didn't want to come in saying that they were going to cut services. They they really tried to stick to a message that no, we're we're just we're going to be um, prudent, but we're not going to slash and burn. And so I think they're in a dilemma because they want to do a lot, but everything, the price of everything is going up. And uh, so then you end up in this situation and their choice is to start cutting services, start cutting some of those employees uh, or raising fees elsewhere, raising taxes. They don't, there's not a lot of options that cities have. No, and, and I'm just looking at this. So even if it, it is a 7.6% increase with the 107 last year, it's 183 And that's not even me counting the compounding nature of, of these two increases. Yeah. You're looking at close to 19% easily, yeah. uh, if not over. And, it just, and you're, you're kind of going, uh, you're the fiscally conservative guys. I mean, how long can you as a brand continue to do this? I mean, if it's even close to 7% the year after in 2025, I'm not sure what you take into the next uh, election campaign and say, hey, look, uh, you know, we kept taxes down to a 25% increase. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm waiting to see what the task force says and if they have some creative way of, you know, somehow massaging that down. I don't know. I mean, it has been a part of my life for 25 years that there's some horrendous tax increase announced and then all of a sudden it miraculously is half of that by the time they actually pass the budget. But I, I'm not sure about this year given, you know, we have the police contract and also um, I believe one of the QPs is is they're also uh, in contract negotiations, and you know, everyone is saying, "Hey, our cost of living is going up. We're not settling for a two percent wage increase." Well, it's going to be very interesting uh, in regards to how the public respond to it. That's for sure. Francis, as always, thank you. 
Yeah, thank you. Till next time. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, uh, we're talking about LNG. Now, many of you know that uh, we are still in the midst of construction on the LNG Canada project. That's the largest uh, private sector investment in the history of this country. The plant is up in Kitimat uh, in the northwest, of course, of British Columbia. Gas will be coming from the northeast. But there are many other smaller projects uh, many groups are looking at, particularly First Nations communities, including the Heisla, Nishka Nation, the Metlakatla, and Halfway River First Nations as well. They're part of the First Nations Climate Initiative. Uh, and they, with the organization, um, put together a study uh, to look at whether Western Canadian LNG can make meaningful contributions to GHG emissions, uh, emissions reductions in Asia, and what are the pathways to getting some of these projects built. Uh, the study was led by Dr. Robert Johnston. He is an executive director at the Centre on Global Energy Policy at Columbia uh, University. Dr. Johnston, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, first and foremost, um, how viable is BC LNG today and now in the midst of an energy transition? I think it's um, still very viable. Um, I think that the gas demand growth in Asia will likely be faster than other regions that are moving faster on the energy transition, uh, such as Europe, uh, for example. Um, but it's also the case that both natural gas and some natural gas, so-called abated natural gas, like gas with carbon capture, renewable natural gas, things like blue hydrogen ammonia, may also contribute um, to part of the energy transition as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, 15 years ago, uh, Australia was pushing very hard in the LNG space. They built many LNG plants. The U.S. soon after as well, uh, built many plants as well, and continue to do so, and not just for Asia, but also uh, for the European market. Uh, and it's been further, I guess, um, sped up because of what's happening uh, in Ukraine. Uh, you still have Qatar uh, uh, growing significantly as well. With those two suppliers, uh, new suppliers, uh, add to that, uh, China, uh, Russia wanting to provide natural gas for China, what are the countries we should be looking at when you say Asia? What specific countries should we be, be looking at in regards to still a potential opening for uh, LNG from British Columbia? Yeah, I think that countries like Japan and Korea um, may not be growing as fast as some markets like China and India, but they're evolving towards using natural gas that's lower methane intensity and has lower life cycle emissions like a lot of the gas out of British Columbia. Uh, So that's one potential market to look at. And then there's other markets like Vietnam and the Philippines and Indonesia that have signed agreements with the G7 group of countries to begin phasing out coal from their economy. Uh, and, you know, coal can be replaced by renewables, it can be replaced by batteries or hydrogen or nuclear or hydro, uh, but also could be replaced by natural gas, depending on the pricing uh, and depending on the infrastructure that those countries have. So I think those are the two markets that are the most interesting is our sort of G7, G20 allies that share our climate and geopolitical goals, mm-hmm. like Japan and Korea. And then some of these faster growth Southeast Asian markets are looking to get out of coal. And in regards to the energy transition itself, some have said, look, we're moving relatively quickly in the world when it comes to EVs. We're actually we're talking about a segment about this issue at 4.30, that the energy transition is moving quickly, that in many ways, uh, not that time has passed British Columbia by, but it's going to be very difficult to attract the billions of dollars required to get these LNG plants built when the energy transition is upon us and uh, there's so many others competing in that space. What would you say to that? 
Yeah, I'm, the report doesn't make the case that we're in a golden age for gas. I think the golden age for gas uh, has come and gone, and I think that you know things like renewables are capturing a lot of market share. And in many ways, natural gas is now competing more, less with wind and solar, more with things like batteries to be a backup fuel uh, to wind and solar. But that said, uh, you know we are going to be losing some Russian gas from the market. Uh, we are losing some of the mature suppliers like Brunei and Indonesia and Malaysia that are having peak production. And we still have, even within the energy transition, uh, a lot of high-growth gas demand markets. And again, remember for Asia, um, a big part of the energy transition for them, much like it was in the U.S. and Canada 15 or 20 years ago, is from coal to gas. Now, again, it won't be exactly the same as it was here because our gas is very cheap. Uh, but I think there are certainly elements uh, across Asia where gas will be part of the alternative to coal. Mm-hmm. Do you see, could you name one or two hurdles here in British Columbia you think that are uh, uh, making it difficult for some of these projects to be built or uh, exported to Asia in your mind? What do you think we need to do better here in this province? Because this study and, and the projects that are moving forward now after LNG Canada are going to be smaller, but a lot of them are led by First Nations communities. What is it that needs to be done do you think could speed up that process? Yeah, I think five or ten years ago, uh, one would have said that a lack of Indigenous partnerships and participation was a big headwind to a lot of these projects. Uh, and, you know, the province has made a lot of progress in structuring, you know, benefit-sharing agreements with uh, local Native communities that have shared sort of equity interest in these projects. So that, that's an issue. I think the biggest issue still is just cost, right? That these are huge projects. And they put a lot of strain on the workforce. Uh, they put a lot of strain on, on sort of the raw material side. Uh, and the more we can kind of be efficient in cost uh, and look to bring in um, materials, um, you know, from other countries, sort of prefab materials, it, the more we can sort of reuse the workforce that we already have out there that's working on LNG Canada, uh, I think the better off we're going to be. Because from a productivity perspective, you know, that's where we, um, you know, I think we're good. But competing with the giants like U.S. and Qatar is really part of the challenge. Hey, welcome back to the show. Uh, uh, late last week, I got a call from the Daily Hive, uh, the website, and uh, they had called about wanting to talk to me. And I would think, why would the Daily Hive want to talk to me? And then, of course, they reminded me, one year ago this week, uh, one two punch of strong winds and blowing snow swept across BC's south coast, arriving just in time for the afternoon rush. Travel by air and sea was also affected by cancellations from BC ferries and several airports, including Vancouver International, where one passenger jet slid off a taxiway. Now, Snowmageddon 2022 plummeted highways and byways around Metro Vancouver into commuter chaos. Commuters tried to navigate their way home as the snow piled up. Bridges and key arteries became virtual parking lots and people found themselves stuck in hours-long waits around uh, the lower mainland. Now, some expressed their anger online about unclear roads and an apparent lack of snow tires on many vehicles. Take a listen to that chaos from that night. Tonight, in the Vancouver, B.C. area, the only Canadian city that never prepares for snow or has any idea what to do when snow comes. Classic Vancouver loses its mind when snow hits. I've been stuck on the highway for almost, actually more than seven hours from Richmond to Surrey. And they said that on Alex Fraser there are a couple of buses and somehow that spun out. I totally get that, but seriously, seven hours, you still can't fix it. That's insane. I left my work at four and it's 
11.35. Is this a lane? I'm pretty sure it is because I drive this road all the time. That guy's driving with any lights on because here we go. NBC, this is what we do. One in the morning, this is what you get. Uh, I got home, I think, at 4.30, uh, and I stayed after the show uh, and thought I'd be smart and have dinner and then drive. I left downtown about 8, so I got home at about 4.30, so a good eight-and-a-half-hour commute that day. Well, joining me to discuss whether we've learned anything uh, after last year's mess is Aliyah Andres. She is an intern here at CKNW, a journalism student who had her own crazy experience. Aliyah, welcome. Hello. Thanks Hello for having me. Hello to you. Me. Great to have you here. Also joining us, of course, is Jeremy Judson, our contributor and former Calgary resident, and unlike many Vancouverites, doesn't curl up in the fetal position at the mere sight of snow on the road. So welcome. That's true. Thank you so much. That's very apt. <laughs> so, Aliyah, let, let me get your thoughts first and foremost. Uh, before you describe your evening, do you think we have learned anything by us, I mean, A, the public and government, just in regards to responding to these snow events? Do you think we've learned anything? Well, you'd think that we have. I mean, you see the salt every year. You see the trucks out plowing, but it just doesn't seem to be enough. Every year we've got crashes. We've got people still not having their snow tires on. Mm-hmm. You'd think that people would get the message, but it's just not sticking, pun intended. So uh, explain to me, what was your night like a year ago this week? Yeah, a year ago today, the snow was aggressively coming down, and I was leaving Burnaby, got on the highway from the Willingdon entrance, and uh, before I knew it, I looked down at my phone. My phone is at 1% and my gas tank light is on and it is bumper to bumper slower than snail speed traffic and I thought oh my gosh I'm gonna have to stay on the side of the highway and sleep in my car with nobody to contact and I was just praying to any force above please let me have enough gas just to get to the next exit and I think from Willingdon to Gillardy it took me an hour just sitting in traffic so I finally got off the highway booted it to a gas station, filled up my tank, got a charger, and sought out ref- uh, refuge Sorry, in a uh, McDonald's for a little bit before I could uh, get back on the highway. And that specific day, I had a very important uh, uh, appointment for IV antibiotics in Maple Ridge. And that was oh, for geez. 5.30, and I eventually got there at 9 o'clock. <laughs> wow. So how long was the total commute then? That was probably about five and a half hours. Wow. In- insane. Insane. My God. Uh, now, Jerry, uh, you've watched us from afar as Vancouverites. Uh, <laughs> you're already making faces. Your thoughts on, on us. Is it our, our inability to drive in this city? Is it the fact that we just don't have snow tires? What do you think? Listen, have you guys ever heard of something called the seven degree rule? No. no. Explain that one to me. So uh, winter tires perform best at seven degrees Celsius plus seven is when they start working better than all seasons. Heavy quotes. I call them three season tires, all season tires on the road. So seven degrees Celsius, even if it doesn't snow, your car will stick better to the road at seven degrees Celsius and below if you have those winter tires on. So you shouldn't even look. I'm you shouldn't even have to look at the weather. Just like it gets cold. Put the snow tires on just in case. Just in case. <laughs> That's all totally. I'm saying. But, and that's just wired in your head being an Alberta yeah, racing. Absolutely. That's correct. <laughs> but also, I think too, part of it is I you learn not to balk when your car is skidding, I guess. If you just have more snow experience, it's less scary for me when my car starts to lose control and sway which way because you just have to put your car in the direction you would like for it to go and not hit the brakes and it's totally fine. I've, I used to drive home from work in Calgary. I used to drive on one road and my, traction, my lack of traction light would just be on on my dash the whole time i'm like yeah no kidding like my wheels are not sticking but you just you figure it out i will also say though 
the bridges here are nuts. The bridges here are no good for snow categorically. Those caveless suspension bridges in particular, they get all the snow on them and then they have to close them to clear off the snow. It's an actual, actual hazard. So there are actual worse things about the snow here, but driver attitudes, I don't know. Just put your, put your flipping yeah. snow tires on, guys. <laughs> I, I mean, I was a bit skeptical of snow tire stuff when that happened the next day in regards to just people calling in, but I, I, I think more and more you're right about that. But my argument is I think we – and I won't get into any specific municipality. Yes, I could. But a couple of them sent out emails. We're prepared for winter this year. First of all, the Are fact you? that you're sending out a press release saying we're prepared, that usually is a tell going – you didn't need to do that unless you're feeling really insecure about you know your response last year. Our problem is actually isn't snow necessarily. I think it's governance. And what I mean by that is I'm going to go on my um, – uh, just going to go on that usual rant that I do. 21 municipalities run the city, Right. Uh, and we got 21 mayors, 21 city councils, 21 different set responses to snow, right? And then you add the Ministry of Transportation for our highways as well. So there's no broad coordination where you could say, you know what, it didn't snow a lot in Poco and Coquitlam. So we're going to take some of those resources, and Vancouver's getting hammered today. We're going to move more of those resources into Vancouver or Surrey, wherever it may be. There isn't that broad uh, sort of strategic response to this stuff. And in, with climate change, it's not just winter weather. It could be summer weather. It could be whatever it may be. We just, first of all, don't govern, govern the region well. So if you're not governing the region well, you're not responding to weather conditions very well, right? You deal with that first. And look at the issue of policing once again. We're having the whole Surrey policing thing. Once about again, to say. Once again, the goal is to get to one police force for the region in some capacity, right? So, and Surrey is where this mess is, mess is at the moment. Our snow response should be the same. I mean, last year, I think it was Brad West doing a victory lap going, well, we were prepared. It's Polko. It's great. I'm happy for you. <laughs> but you didn't get hit like uh, Delta did and Richmond did and Vancouver did, right? And that's been our problem. It's, it's all so siloed and isolated that I just, I just, uh, I kind of shake my head and go, we've done nothing really. And I don't, you know, I'm not sure what we could have done in regards to preparing, preparing for the next one, but it's going to come. This is a cycle every time. Have we learned? Have we learned? Have we learned? And the answer is generally we don't. So No, not really. Not really. <laughs> but we so can try our best. We can try. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Jerry Mayor Judson, our show contributor, and Aaliyah Andres, our uh, intern. We were talking about Snowmageddon 2022. Uh, I guess the one-year anniversary technically is Wednesday, but a year uh, this week. Uh, when we had a uh, commute from hell uh, for a lot of folks. Mine was only eight and a half hours. I think I heard one person took 11 hours to get home. Could you imagine leaving at six o'clock and getting in at 5.30 in the morning? And of course, uh, they were saying it came in quick and, and it happened during rush hour and a uh, thousand one excuses. Questions, have we learned anything? Can you really prepare for it? Give us a call on the open line. We'd love to hear from you. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell phone. Let's go to Karina in Coquitlam. Hi, Karina. Yeah, hi. How are you today? I am well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, do you remember Snowmageddon 2022? Did you get stuck in it? Oh, do I remember? <laughs> I was uh, 10 hours on the road. I left work. We were told we could leave an hour, maybe an hour and a half early to try to beat that snowstorm oh, or no. get ahead of it or something. Yeah, and that was probably the worst advice we could have received. Um and we got out on the road, and I was 10 hours. Oh, wow. uh, where were you uh, commuting from, and where are you from going? Coquitlam, from Coquitlam to North Delta. Oh, so wow. probably the worst, I think. It was, um, yeah, there was just no... And I'm not somebody who's afraid to travel in the snow. I've, 
driven the highways and up to the mountains many times in my life. I've lived here my entire life, and and uh, but I, I, you know, I do, I have a little. I hate to use the phrase, but PTSD. I'm definitely a little nervous um, for the next one or the next time. That's for sure. Do you? I mean, do you think there's? My argument is that we just don't coordinate as a region very well. Um, I mean, what do you think needs to be done to to improve things as we as climate change, um, you know, uh, impacts snow to 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 heat, whatever it may be? How do you make things better so you don't have <laughs> a ten and a half hour commute? Well, there was. Clearly a lack of communication and a lack of honesty. I mean, the, the day before or maybe just a couple days before, when you listen to the Vancouver airport, they made it sound like they had everything running smoothly and there wasn't going to be an issue and everybody was on board and everybody was ready to take on this challenge. And, and it, when you got out there in the day, then you heard nothing but excuses and the lack of communication and the finger pointing and the, yeah, I think that you're right. The coordination, we don't communicate in any industry from one floor to the next as well as we probably could and should. And yeah, and no, you're, uh, that, yeah. you're absolutely right. Karina. Thank you for your call. Um, yeah. What I didn't like is I go back to my original point. You know, there's cities that were taking blame while other mayors from different suburbs were doing a victory lap. We did great. Well, that doesn't solve anything. That doesn't make it better. And if I may, I was a traffic reporter that day. I blessedly I got to work from home, um, but I, I I remember the, the lack of communication and the lack of just saying like we even I as a traffic reporter I had no information apart from people calling in and saying like well the roads are terrible. I'm like uh huh. But then when I looked at the websites for um, say the the people that are supposed to say when the bridges are closed and everything like I was learning this information at the exact same time as the people on the roads. There was no no communication no messaging. Wow. Wow. Let's go to uh, Carrie in Surrey. Hi, Carrie. Hi. um, I was just going to say, I used to live in Toronto like for a year, and whenever we would drive down the road and there was snow, our friends would go, oh, and someone's pulled over to the side. They're like, oh, look, there's a driver from BC. Like, (laughs) we, we, that's us. I I, I used to laugh because friends would be like, in October, and I'm I'm sure from Calgary you do the same, October, November, we're getting ready for the winter. We get ready for the winter by putting socks on with our sandals. Like, we are not prepared at all. And what I laughed about um, Snowmageddon is snow started coming down. Everyone left work at the same time. Like, there was no, like, normal going through driving times, sporadic driving. Everyone left at the same time. That's a so good point. We couldn't handle it because we panic. We can't, we just can't handle the snow. <laughs> no, we can't. Thank you so much for your uh, call, Carrie. Um, snow tires in Calgary. We've talked about that. So do you have snow tires here in Vancouver then? Uh, I surely do. Yeah. I had to bring them with me. I'm not going to, I'm like, well, it snows there and the, and the road gets to seven degrees Celsius. I, <laughs> so I got to adhere to my own annoying rule. So I'm curious. Uh, we, you've told me that you rent in, in Metro town. Do you yeah. have space there? I, in theory, I do, but my storage locker is full of the stuff I cannot so fit in my shoebox. The, the tires live at uh, Cal Tire. This is like what I did in Calgary as well, is I would just put my tires elsewhere, and then they're at the place where they're going to change my tires anyway. That makes me sound like a little bit of a princess, but that's what I do. No, but I think that's, that's I mean, if, if it's, it's real. If, if you're in a, in, a, in a Vancouver 600 square foot apartment or whatever it may be, uh-huh. or, there's, or no five, no there's no room for no tires. There's no tires. Exactly. You got to put them somewhere, and, and in this case, Cal Tire, so that Totally, uh, totally makes sense. Aliyah, you were mentioning uh, something to me during the break. Uh, 
just changing tires too, right? I mean, just yeah. just being prepared, whether it be just an emergency kit, a blanket, or even having a knowledge how to change tires. <laughs> totally. I mean, um, like, let's just say you're on the snowy highway or anything and, you know, tire pops and you're just like, well, now I'm going to be really stuck if I don't get this other <laughs> spare tire on here. And like you were saying, like knowing how to change a tire, like that should be something that we learn in school, right? Yeah. Because that's a real skill that if you don't know how to do that and you're somewhere where, you know, you don't have cell service or like me, your phone's at 1%, it's not going to be super good. <laughs> no, exactly. Thank you. You're welcome so much. Hey, welcome back to the show. Well, I was reading the uh, Wall Street Journal this weekend uh, and they had a really interesting article uh, in regards to the new uh, EV battle, Tesla versus Toyota. Uh, And basically the article focused on uh, Elon Musk's vision for an electric vehicle future, which is being challenged by Toyota's hybrid plans. Uh, Musk wants to make the world electric, of course, targeting annual vehicle deliveries that would overtake Toyota to become the best-selling automaker before 2030. Now, Toyota has been viewed to a certain degree uh, as a bit of a laggard in the issue of EVs. Uh, There appear to be, certainly where I sit, uh, still very much focused on um, the hybrid, but one would argue they're slowly dipping their feet uh, in the water there in regards to being competitive with uh, with Tesla. But I wanted to speak to our next guest because he knows this market very well. Jeremy Cato is an automotive journalist at CatoCarGuy.com, and he joins us now. Jeremy, thank you for uh, speaking to us today. Great to be here. Hope you're well. I'm doing very well. Hope you're well as well. You were in Europe, were you not? Uh, last month. Last month. Well, well, I was in We'll touch on the trip because I'm very curious as to what you thought of the EV market in Europe. But let's focus a little bit on uh, Tesla versus Toyota just for a second here. Give me a sense of where Toyota is and where Tesla is in regards to their visions of, of, uh, I guess, a cleaner, greener future in regards to how these vehicles, the vehicles they want to sell. What's their worldview uh, for both companies? As you probably have no, uh, T- Toyota has been dragged kicking and screaming into the EV world, but Toyota is there now. And in fact, uh, in a recent video that I did, uh, I-, I noted that at the last shareholders meeting in June, uh, one of the big questions rattling around for Toyota's shareholders was, can Toyota beat Tesla in battery electric vehicles? And Toyota stood up very firmly and said, oh, yes, we're going we're gonna to beat them in battery. We're going to beat Tesla in battery electric vehicles. But that is only a part of their electrification strategy, you know, going back 20 odd years now with the Prius. So Toyota's plan is to have a, a selection of different vehicles um, that will have some sort of electrification. And, uh, and that will allow it to compete globally because only rich countries can afford electric vehicles. If you're in India, if, you know, uh, you, no one in India except a very tiny sliver of the population can fo- afford an EV, a pure battery electric vehicle. So that's Toyota's position is have a range of vehicles. Toyota has already built a dedicated EV factory and uh, development center and uh, has dedicated platforms and is working with Panasonic on its batteries. Tesla, well, Tesla... Do you want me to stop? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Go for it. Uh, well, I mean, Tesla's strengths are, are pretty obvious. It's extremely profitable, uh, one of the most car, profitable car makers uh, ever. Uh, however, you know, there are a lot of headwinds for, for Tesla now. Uh, the lineup is pretty old. I mean, the, the Model S is more is a decade-plus old now. It 
And while there's been upgrades to the software, it's still a kind of a tired design. And uh, so that's a bit of a problem. And the whole the whole fleet, Tesla's really dogged by uh, quality issues. Um, you know, it, it, you know it, that, that's been an ongoing issue. Tesla has battery challenges. It relies heavily on suppliers, unlike, say, another competitor like the Chinese company BYD, which is completely vertically integrated. And Tesla doesn't have strong sales outside of a few key markets, Europe, China, and the United States. Toyota, on the other hand, is hugely powerful in a lot of markets where battery electric vehicles and even hybrids are not really relevant at this, you know, at the present time, you know, poor markets, emerging markets, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So in the case of Toyota, they'll have obviously full EV uh, models available. Uh, And I was reading somewhere, they they say they have technology that would allow an EV to to travel 900 kilometers before you need to charge it. And that charge would only take 10 minutes. Why are they not going even more aggressively in the U.S. market, in Canada, in Europe, uh, and some of these uh, developed nations, because one would assume that's a huge selling point. But yet it seems that they're still thinking hybrid is still the way to go, more so than even EV, all EV. Right. Well, I mean, Toyota claims, um, with not a lot of, you know, on-the-ground evidence yet, that it has uh, got solid-state batteries, which... Um, are much uh, much improved for range and durability over the existing electrolyte uh, style batteries that are out there, and they they claim that, that they are coming more and more uh, and more quickly, and w- that will help them leapfrog Tesla, which is you know heavily reliant on its battery supplier, which is mostly Panasonic. Um, so that's one piece. But I, I think the, the real story with Toyota is Toyota is a global car company, and this is the way the company sees itself. Um, as a global automotive company, a mobility company that sells vehicles in all sorts of markets. And the battery electric um, phenomenon is a rich country phenomenon outside of China, of course. Uh, but China is a different story because everything is government subsidized in China, you know, including most of its industries, or at least they're government controlled. So Toyota wants to sell vehicles in places in South America where you, there is no such thing as an EV charger, in places in, in Asia where there's no Africa, where there's no charger. So what you're seeing from Toyota is a focus on providing vehicles for the for the world where Toyota sells all these vehicles. And remember, Toyota sells Oh, close to 11 million vehicles a year now. So that's that's why Toyota's slow walking some of these things. And frankly, if you talk to Toyota executives quietly on the side, they're still not sold on the idea that battery electric vehicles are ultimately going to be as big a thing as our politicians would like to think of. And keeping in mind, you know, mm-hmm. that our regulations from the federal government. Um, for battery electric vehicles in Canada start to kick in seriously in 2026. 20% of all new vehicles sold in Canada are supposed to be BEVs. I'm not sure that's realistic, but that's what the law says right now. Yeah, there's no doubt uh, Toyota is also a global company. I I was shocked when I go to Afghanistan, you know, covering war zones, 10 to 1, they're all driving Toyotas. I'm just shocked at how many Toyotas even see in countries like Afghanistan. But getting back to the issue of Tesla for a moment, I was reading also that while, you know, EV sales are growing, they're not growing as 
quickly as they once did, meaning the low-hanging fruit in regards to the, the first-time buyer, they're, they're gone. And that second, that, that other buyer, the next level of buyer is going, wait a minute, 50000 for one Tesla, There's, it's a two-car family, it's $100,000. That's a lot of money. Um, are we hitting a wall there in regards to the, that next generation of EV sale, if the prices are sitting at fifty thousand or sixty thousand dollars a year, that's out of that's you know that's too much for most families. Jazz, if if I could buy an EV for fifty thousand dollars, <laughs> I'd be a genius. Um, you know, there there are very few. I mean, there's a few like the the Kia Nero, which sort of are in that fifty thousand range. But if you if you look at the the numbers. I mean, Auto Trader reports that the average uh, selling price of an EV in Canada is somewhere around seventy-three to seventy-five thousand dollars hmm. after subsidies. Um, so, you know, well, at that price, there are no subsidies. But you know, that it's it, you know, the average family household income in Canada is seventy-five thousand dollars. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, are you going to spend a year's salary on a car? Um, <laughs> you know, my first car cost two hundred fifty bucks. So. Um, now that was a little while ago. Any, anyway, the, 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 I, I think what you really asked is: Have we have all the early adopters bought their EVs? Mm-hmm. And if you talk to people in the car business, they say yes, they have. And now the trick is: How do you get the next level of buyer in there? And the only way to do that, and truly, this, the only way to get the non-early adopters, the people that might be interested, is to lower the prices. Number one, but number two. Infrastructure is still a huge problem in this country and in the United States and other places. I mean, getting your vehicle charged is, is problematic. And let me just can I can I just tell you yeah. one personal thing here? Yeah. You know, I have a you know, I've had I have a, uh, an interest in a, in a one particular tower in North Vancouver. That's an older tower. I've got some properties there. Mm-hmm. And. You know, as as president of the Strata Council, we just commissioned an EV ready plan to see if we could install just the infrastructure to put chargers in our building. Yeah, that doesn't mean that's not the chargers themselves. That's just the wiring and the conductors and the relays and all that stuff. 152 units in this building. Three hundred thousand dollars just to wire it so that somebody can spend two or three thousand dollars to put a charger in their parking spot $300,000 now there's two as I've seen it there's two electric vehicles in this building there is no way um, you know we could go as a as a strata council to our members and say would you all like to contribute $2,500 each to an infrastructure um, that you'll never use yeah that's not gonna happen and you know in North Vancouver Lower Lonsdale where I live um, there's one fast charger there's one BC Hydro fast charger. So th- that's pretty commonplace, especially once you get out of the big cities in Canada, uh, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard to get a, a vehicle charged. Yeah, and that's where I guess Toyota says, wait a minute here, that's exactly what we're talking about. Hybrids would be better at this moment. That's what they're saying. If, I, if I'm spending my money, I would buy a hybrid right now. You cut your CO2 emissions in half and you have your fuel bill. Yeah, it's a pretty good start, yeah, re- you know, because global warming is real. Yeah, no, absolutely. Jeremy, as always, thank you so much for your time. Good, my pleasure. All good right. 
last week, uh, I was reading an article. Uh, it was regarding um, uh, Ontario. Uh, Ontario Premier Doug Ford was uh, not happy with the federal government. He was complaining about jurisdictional overreach. In this case, the feds uh, were negotiating directly with uh, municipalities in that province uh, in regards to the issue of housing. In fact, uh, we had the housing minister on the show uh, last week, the federal housing minister, uh, and he pretty much um, sloughed off what uh, Premier Ford was saying. But that term jurisdictional overreach can apply to British Columbia as well. Now, as many of you know, the provincial government uh, has been saying for a long time that you know zoning barriers and layers of regulation have slowed down the delivery of housing, in this case, because of municipalities. They brought in Bill 44, uh, legislation that uh, would allow for, obviously, a secondary suite or a laneway home on a property, but also three to four units permitted on lots currently zoned for single family or duplex use, and six units permitted on larger lots. Uh, it's had a huge, of course, it could have a huge impact on communities. Uh, many folks have said you've taken away uh, the certainly the power or the ability to consult local consultation local communities have already done with their own uh, citizens uh, and they don't need Victoria to tell them what their communities want. In fact, many would argue Bill 44 undermines many uh, years of urban planning communities have gone through. One of those is the township of Langley. Their mayor, Eric Woodward, joins me now. Uh, Eric, thank you for speaking to us today. Yeah, thanks again. My apologies for the long introduction, but I wanted to to sort of set this straight for a moment here. You're a community that is growing very quickly. Uh, You're a community that has all types of housing, uh, and you're building for all types of buyers in your community. What does Bill 44 do to City Hall and its ability to plan for the present and the future, and in regards to what you can and cannot do moving forward? Yeah, well, Bill 44 for us uh, is, a, is a significant uh, problem in the sense that it undermines years of uh, urban planning work in some of our developing areas. So the Township of Langley has 2,800 urban acres of new development to do, and we're doing it with fourplexes and sixplexes and single-family homes, but also townhomes and row homes and apartments and the odd high-rise. And you know, we have and are producing housing at a much faster rate than our housing needs report, and yet we're being lumped in and, and uh, dragged into this uh, situation with Bill 44, 46, and 47 with other municipalities that aren't doing that. And that's going to cause us a lot of problems. So uh, you had posted something on Facebook recently in regards to uh, plans for, I do believe it was called the Booth, Rin, and Fern Ridge uh, plans. Can you walk me through what the yeah. legislation does to your community and your council's uh, uh, planning process moving forward in regards to these two, three areas? Yeah, so we had a differentiation between North Langley and South Langley. And in North Langley, we're building a lot of higher density forms, rural homes and to- townhomes and apartments. And uh, in other parts of South Langley that are more rural, further away from infrastructure or transit, we have uh, moved forward with some lower density forms uh, for around 47,000 people. And that was just about to get underway to deliver 15,000 new housing units for the region, some of the most attainable uh, and affordable housing within Metro Vancouver. And we're going to have to scrap those plans now because the population has now gone up to arbitrarily with Bill 44. With all new subdivisions, it'll now be 115,000, up from 47,000, without any planning for schools, recreation, or parks. And so we simply can't allow it to go ahead. And I'll be bringing that to council on Monday uh, for council to see what it wants to do with those plans. But in my opinion, uh, those can't proceed. 
So you've, how long was this consultation process and, and just all the thinking that is required and the planning that's required for these communities? How long has been spent on getting to this point prior to the legislation? Ten years. And that's all just now thrown away? Uh, well, we, we're not sure to what extent uh, all of it has to be replaced, but the urban planning process that we embarked there in a coordination of our whole community, including Willowbrook with the SkyTrain station, which we'll see a lot of higher density forms. And then in Willoughby, we're seeing a lot of different housing forms from duplexes to compact lots to, again, townhomes and rooms. And in this area, we contemplated a range of housing types from apartments to townhomes, but with some smaller compact lots, single family subdivisions with quad, with, with fourplexes, but on larger lots with basement suites, but with some slightly different lot sizes and a variety of housing throughout our entire community. And uh, now those areas are, are now being designated for high density by Victoria. And it just doesn't work for our community. It's not what our community agreed to, to be well in excess of our housing needs reports. We are, we are producing housing much faster than our housing needs report would dictate. And uh, here in the township, it definitely feels like we're being punished for that. So uh, so I, when I look at the numbers, 47,000 people living in 15,000 homes, that's been approved, that's the planning. You're moving forward uh, broadly as a community. This bill comes along and potentially you could have 115,000 people living in those areas based on what the legislation says. First of all, is that acceptable by anybody, by most people in your community in regards to a number that size? Well, the problem is, even if it was, which it's not because of the way we're looking at all of our areas of our community together cohesively, it's not just one area. But if you plan out a population of that amount with a certain quantity of parks and schools and recreation facilities, if you go and effectively up to quadruple that, like to change that from 47 to 115,000, all of that planning is gone because we'll end up with not enough schools for kids to go to. We won't have enough uh, park sites for people to go to, and it just doesn't work. And so there's a lot of work that goes into creating these balanced, livable neighborhoods that hasn't been contemplated by Bill 44. If you're worried about a single-family home next to a SkyTrain station, go and deal with that. But why are you undermining you know, 10 years of urban planning work in areas like mine? So do you believe there's many other communities like you dealing with the law of uh, unintended consequences like you have been having, you will be dealing with moving mm-hmm. forward? Are there other communities that you're other mayors you're hearing from? Well, it's, you know, right now mayors throughout the region are still getting up to speed on some of the implications for them. This, this will also be a similar challenge for the city of Surrey and the city of Maple Ridge that have uh, some of the undeveloped areas within the region that are still proceeding with these new new plants. And, uh, you know, there's been no consultation with local government that I'm aware of. And I think that's been the core problem. We could have raised these concerns, you know, much earlier in the process rather than desperately trying to bring it to somebody's attention prior to uh, the bill receiving royal assent. And, and now we're dealing with how ramifications of it after the fact. Nobody simply asked us what the implications of this plan would be. And here we are now in panic mode, essentially in panic mode, uh, you know, trying to get housing built, but being undermined by the Ministry of Housing to get housing built. So I can't see this provincial government backing down. Uh, is there any way you, your consultation and planning for a decade can be salvaged in any way in regards to the actions from Victoria? 
It's, well, we're still going to look at that, but either way, it'll be substantially delayed for a number of years. And we're not sure how many, but it'll be some for sure, because we have a long backlog of urban planning work from updating our urban plan around the new Surrey-Langley Skytrain to now dealing with the mandates from the province uh, to other neighborhood planning work that we've had in the queue for a long time. So when will we get back to this area? It's unknown. And, you know, what is that going to look like? Because we built a consensus over a number of years to proceed with this plan. And, and now to try to go back and just, just mandate densities into people, we're not going to do that. I don't think this council is going to do that. I don't want to do that. And so we have to work with the community to advance these plans. And uh, the province uh, doesn't seem to be concerned with that. Uh, should this uh, province have focused on a few set communities, large and or larger urban areas of Vancouver's, the Surrey's, uh, and work with those communities to figure out uh, legislation, regulation that would work and, and th- that would be attainable rather than this piecemeal way of doing things in your mind? Well, it's piecemeal. It's more like uh, one size fits all, which I know you've heard many times, Jess. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this uh, sledgehammer approach to urban planning just isn't going to work. And, uh, you know, you've got problems that are maybe legitimate where you've got a sea of single family homes in, in Vancouver. That's not the situation here. Uh, we are updating neighborhood plans for areas. We are building cities from scratch with a variety of housing types that people can can get to and and can, you know, afford. I know that's uh, a bit misleading, but uh, what can be afforded these days, but they are more affordable than something in elsewhere. And so, you know, that is being held up and delayed now while, you know, you try to try to deal with some municipalities that aren't updating these plans fast enough for the economy, fast enough for working people, but we're not one of them. And, uh, you know, we're getting it done here and we're going to have to now delay and revisit and review, which is going to delay the very housing the minister uh, says he wants. Uh, I'd be very angry if I was in your position. Perhaps uh, that's just my sense of listening to you here, but I'd be very angry. You seem very calm for 10 years of work being, you know, flushed down the toilet to a certain degree. You know, I think uh, we're we're now sort of resigned to it. I think you're right. I don't I think we've uh, now, I'm now met with the minister. I'm not expecting um, these concerns to, to result in, in modifications to their plans. So now we're simply in damage control mode. And so, you know, anger is not going to solve any problems. I understand what the minister is trying to do. I sympathize with the desire to help working people and help everyday people buy homes and live in their communities. But this, this one-size-fits-all approach is not going to achieve the results. So if the minister's talking about 100,000 units from Bill 44 over 10 years, uh, he should adjust that to starting off at minus 15,000 based upon what he's done here alone. Eric Woodward, as always, thank you for your time. Great. Thank you. Today's Solicitor General Mike Farnworth says since the police board was replaced a couple of weeks ago, three staff haven't attended transition meetings uh, much at all. Uh, he says the transition, nevertheless, is going ahead uh, to Surrey Police. Uh, here is Solicitor General Mike Farnworth from earlier today. The administrator is in place. Um, the uh, been working very well with the, uh, the Surrey Police Service, the RCMP, both federally and locally. Uh, unfortunately, the, the city has not been participating. Uh, every meeting that has been uh, scheduled, they have uh, either cancelled or, or failed to participate. Um, they s- seem to be more interested in uh, spending taxpayers' money on um, you know, advertising campaigns than they do on actually being constructive and working uh, on the transition which is, uh, which is moving forward.
That was Solicitor General Mike Farnworth uh, speaking earlier today. I often wonder, what do Surrey taxpayers actually think? You got a lot of calls, obviously, on this show. I speak to the mayor. I speak to the Solicitor General. Uh, I've spoken to Surrey Police Service. I've spoken to Surrey RCMP. But even after all this time, it's hard to gauge uh, what citizens are thinking. Uh, joining me now is Frank Buckholtz. He's a Surrey Now leader columnist, uh, and he joins us now. Frank, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Jess. And I don't uh, pretend to, uh, you know, force you to tell me exactly what Surrey residents are thinking because I know it's a tough one to gauge. But your sense, what sense do you have in regards to Surrey itself and this entire uh, RCMP SPS conversation? Uh, what are you hearing? Well, I think uh, the sense I have is that uh, many people are kind of tuned out of it because it's, you know, a political bun fight you know, or duel or whatever you want to call Mm-hmm. call it. Um, I think the biggest concern is what is it going to cost me? Uh, and interestingly, the city just did a survey in its budget consultation process, and they got, they surveyed almost 3,000 people, mm-hmm. which, is, which is a decent amount. Mm-hmm. And on the top of mind issues, uh, the first one was the t- transportation infrastructure. Second one was the public safety and emergency services, which obviously includes the police. And third was parks and open space. Now, I don't have a lot of details about what went beyond that, but what that says to me is that many people are thinking of a lot of other things besides just the fight over the police. Mm-hmm. But do you think the fact that it's taken this long and it's going to continue? I mean, you've, the the city hall's got uh, you know court action. Uh, well, the solicitor general says, "Look, uh, we, we've written this legislation. Nothing's going to come of it. We're moving ahead with this transition." Uh, do you see uh, moving forward? Uh, that there will be some sort of con- conclusion this in a where they can sit down and actually figure something out, or do you think this is going to be is going to be well into twenty twenty four? We're going to just deal with animosity between the city and and the provincial government. Well, I think the animosity is going to definitely continue probably until the provincial election, and maybe beyond that. So, I mean, we're looking at almost a year there. I mean, Mike Farnworth is not communicating with Brenda Locke. Brenda Locke isn't communicating with Mike Farnworth. She has labeled the NDP police service. Truly, that, that surely that is an indication that you know she's going to try and politicize the issue as much as possible as the provincial election approaches. So I, I see no very little to no chance that there's going to be any resolution unless they both agree to have an arbitrator sort out their differences, which I think is highly unlikely because I think Mark Mike Farnworth figures he's got the whip hand. Uh, and in regards to the provincial election, as you say, Ms. Locke and Council want to make this a provincial issue, certainly one that will be debated within Surrey. Uh, do you see voters there viewing this as an issue, even though it's a municipal issue? Do you see any sort of spillover into the political discourse provincially, or can it potentially impact any vote within the sort of 10 seats in Surrey, which are very important for any political party? Um, it definitely is going to spill over to some degree. I mean, how much is hard to say because, you know, I just don't know if it's a top-of-mind issue for for most people. I think the top-of-mind issue for most people is affordability. Mm-hmm. And probably right next to that is housing and homelessness. But I do think it will spill over to some degree. I think the NDP potentially could lose a couple seats 
if this issue combined with others caused people to shift their votes. But, I mean, the the good thing the NDP have going for them is they've got a divided opposition. Yeah. And so, so even uh, if people do shift their votes, it may not make that much difference. Uh, I, d- explain something to me. Why are people not showing up at City Hall with pitchforks, whether you support them or not? $8 million a month is being spent uh, for these two police forces, $266,000 per day. Why is there no, I guess, more more uproar uh, just based on the cost alone? Well, that's a good question. And I mean, you're quite right. There probably should be. But I think most of most taxpayers nowadays, and I have to include myself in this as one who observes this, you know, we hear about government overspending waste things so often that we become kind of blasé towards it. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't. We shouldn't. But I think we do. And I think um, in the case of the city, I mean, the, the extra costs of the police service, and there are extra costs, although no one seems to know exactly what they are or what they total up to, um, you know, I think people see that as, well, this is something that's been imposed by the province. The city has no say in it, which they don't at this point in time. And uh, we as taxpayers have to take it. But at the same time, I don't think that they're so mad about it that they're going to take it out on their provincial representatives. Hmm. Well, it is very interesting from where we see it, uh, and I always appreciate uh, you uh, giving us time uh, for your thoughts as well. Look forward to having you on the show soon. Thank you so much, Frank. Yeah, thanks, Jazz, and thanks for your attention to this issue. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.